0: you know, my cat, the neighbor's dog, you know, the sheep across the field. COVID seems to be completely irrelevant. A person in a care home may need 10 times more than you or I just to have that normal level that would give you the beginning of a fighting chance if you ever got an infection. If you're like a super fit sports person and you go off and run, I don't know, 10 miles or something, Um, and then you are exposed to the coronavirus and catch it, you'll actually be in a worse
1: state. Based on what we now know, we're a year into COVID, what's the best that people can do both for prevention
0: and for early treatment? When the second wave hit, I contacted one intensive care unit, said, why haven't you started? They said, we've got no supplies. So I rang up a supply of intravenous vitamin C and uh, they very kindly said we'll donate vitamin C for the trial, and we have it right here. But the response was very sorry. We can't buy from you. We have to buy from you know Public Health England. That that sounds more like an excuse than a, a reason. You know, it's kind of crazy. If you can do you know nine million you know PCR tests a day, uh, why can't you you know bother to find a supplier of vitamin C because it was there? It's
1: been challenging trying to get the yeah. National Health Service in the UK to get on board with vitamin C, but there is. Um, a bit of uh, sunlight coming through the clouds in the in the possibility yeah. of a trial in the UK, in Scotland, that's gonna be specifically looking at older people in care homes and vitamin C. Um, tell us about the Vita-C for care study that you're involved with. Patrick, it is fantastic as always to speak to you. Um, we're gonna be talking about a very important piece of research that's really urgently needed. Before we get on to that, um, Patrick, for people who don't know you, and there are a few people left on the planet who don't, just give us a quick biog. Why are you so passionate about vitamin C? Uh,
0: Well, a real quickie. I mean, I'm basically a psychologist originally, and I got interested in the brain. And uh, the more I studied the brain, the more I realized nutrition was key. Uh, and I helped run the very first randomized controlled trial that showed that nutrients actually can increase IQ scores, and came across an amazing man called Dr. Linus Pauling. And if you haven't heard of this man, you should, because when Einstein was asked, are you a genius, he said, if you want a real genius, it's Dr. Linus Pauling. By the time I met him, he had two unshared Nobel Prizes. He had 48 PhDs. Uh, He also discovered the way in which a gene can cause disease and how the environment can infect a gene and change it, that is epigenetics, and he put vitamin C on the map. And the reason he got interested uh, is very simple. He noticed three extraordinary things about vitamin C. Number one, all animals make it. So we're talking about, since the very beginning of oxygen-based life forms, When we've been generating energy from glucose, we make exhaust fumes called oxidants and they kill you. So we've always had to have an antioxidant, which is vitamin C. It's as simple as that. There is no animal on this planet that doesn't make vitamin C, except for those who've lost it by some genetic quirk, which happens to include us primates. So he thought- And and my, my two guinea pigs as well. Exactly. Your guinea pigs. And there's a couple of Amazonian fish as well. And yeah. bats, which yeah. is very interesting. Yeah. And what he noticed was the animals who make vitamin C are remarkably resilient against all viruses and also remarkably resilient against cancer. And the other thing that kind of blew his mind was if I drink 10 litres of water you know, in the next hour, I can kill myself. Now, if I take uh, 100... Um, thousand milligrams of vitamin C and and a mere 30 milligrams will stop me getting scurvy. It's not toxic. I may get loose bowels, but you can't die from an overdose of vitamin C. He had never seen such a versatile chemical that actually looks very similar to glucose. It's just four steps away from glucose that all animals make except for us and your guinea pigs and um, this cancer and viral connection. So he spent 39 years on just that vitamin C research and I came across his research and a penny dropped in the early 80s which was could it be that we're all getting sick from sub-optimum nutrition with vitamin C being one. I founded the Institute for Optimum Nutrition in 1984 and ever since then I've been really interested in what vitamin C can do and the kind of dose we need you, especially in viral
1: disease, and Patrick, you also had the the Carl Pfeiffer, Abram Hoffer link, didn't you? Um, it's true. Not yeah. just in textbooks, but in real life. I I had the pleasure of meeting Abram Hoffer. I never met mm. Carl Pfeiffer. So, uh, and and that was obviously looking at um, vitamin C, B vitamins for for a whole range of psychiatric um, issues. Yes. So so look, we're on to COVID. Um yes. There has been quite a bit of talk of of, of vitamin C initially in the trials. um, We've seen even pushback from the authorities on vitamin D. Um, You are polled, as do we, and as do a number of key researchers and clinicians around the world, that um, low vitamin C status is a significant predisposing factor for severe COVID disease. We're really only interested in severe COVID disease, not necessarily elimination of the virus. So Tell us how important um, low vitamin C status,
0: and you mentioned scurvy, yes. how does that pan out? I mean, the first thing to understand is that uh, when you've got a level of 11, or will call it 10 for ease, you're into the scurvy range. Seriously. Units, Patrick, units. Uh, nanomoles per litre in your blood. Now uh, when the UK do surveys, they want everyone to be above 50. So that's sort of considered acceptable. Uh, If you look at animals, animals keep their blood, this is animals that make vitamin C, they keep their blood level between 60 and 70, regardless. If they are exposed to a virus, they will massively increase their production of vitamin C. I mean, a goat can make up to 50 grams a day. One gram is 20 oranges worth, by the way. Or, or, uh, you know, a goat can make 50,000 milligrams. We are told to get 40 milligrams. to prevent scurvy, which is your teeth falling out and your gums bleeding and so on. So all animals keep their blood level constant, whatever the circumstances are. Viral load high, they make more and they always excrete it in their urine. So that's what happens. So there's actually three roles for vitamin C. The first is we all need to have enough every day at any point in time. So if we do come across a virus, already our immune system Uh, is preloaded. And vitamin C is both antiviral. It kills viruses. It's also an antioxidant. And when you have a viral attack, you get a lot of oxidative uh, damage going on. Both the virus and our immune system uses these sort of oxidant bullets. So we all need a decent background. But if we looked at animals, which is what Linus Pauling does, what he found was while an animal might make five grams a day, normally, if they're under viral attack, they will massively increase their production of vitamin C. And in effect, they always make sure that their blood level stays in that range. Now we know right now, without any doubt at all, that if you look at immune cells, which are the white blood cells, if someone's under viral attack, they need about six grams, 6,000 milligrams, 20 oranges is one gram. So we're talking 120 oranges worth, just to have a normal cell level, you know, a normal level. So if, you, if there were no studies, and there are, there's actually hundreds of studies, you would say, when you get the symptoms of a cold, you should have at least six grams. And in the studies that have given people six grams or eight grams or so on, you get uh well in one study half of people were symptom-free in 24 hours uh if you put all the studies together and i by the way already consider six to eight grams in a day to be quite low when you're sick uh you're looking at 20 percent shorter infection so in other words rather than five days four days uh what i do is i take a gram an hour now the point here is that you only really tip into serious covid if you don't get well within two weeks. Uh, So it's the uh, quantity of dead virus particles that builds up and eventually the immune system spots this as an alien and attacks. So that's the cytokine storm, that's the sepsis that kills people. So shortening a, a COVID infection is massively important. So number one, we know we need it every day. Number two, we know that we need a lot more on first signs of infection. And if you do that, you'll probably get rid of it in 24 to 48 hours, but certainly much shorter. But then there's a third factor which people don't generally understand, which is that if you look where vitamin C is in the body, you find that it's massively concentrated in the adrenal glands. Mm -hmm. And when you're under attack, uh, and of course this COVID is an attack, the adrenal glands release Vitamin C literally is released. This this means it's a hormone. It's released from a gland. Blood levels go up 20 fold. And also what's really fascinating is that it's released with the natural anti-inflammatory steroid called cortisol. And what we're now learning is that both cortisol and vitamin C together work as anti-inflammatories and basically put out the cytokine storm fire, the sepsis. But here's the big problem if you started with low vitamin c levels didn't take any extra when you got sick stay sick for 2 weeks and then tip into the critical phase you've got no vitamin c yeah. and that is why what they're finding in intensive care units is is most people have chronically low vitamin c levels by the time they get into icu and also the level of vitamin C predicts their chances of surviving.
1: Yeah, well, which is also why corticosteroid therapy combined with IV vitamin C has been shown in some of the uh, clinical trials to, to actually yeah. work very, very, very well. So alongside other nutrients, obviously the average person has heard an awful lot about vitamin D in relation to COVID. They've also heard about zinc. Is it yeah. just another important synergistic player how much
0: on its own would would yeah. be- no? It does an awful lot on its own. See, the thing is, in a sense, if you look at the evolutionary point of view, we're all designed to be naked, living outdoors, and a lot further south, you know, than the UK. So, you know, and in winter, when the angle of the sun is not enough, it's obvious that we all become vitamin D deficient. So. In a sense, we are all designed to have more vitamin D, especially in the winter, than you know than we are achieving. So everyone needs to supplement vitamin D and get their blood level up to a certain point. Um, it takes about four days to convert the vitamin D that you might eat in a mackerel or take in a supplement into the hormonal form that, you know, that helps to support yeah, immunity. Yeah. So what I'm trying to say here is, while there's nothing wrong especially if you've got low vitamin D, and taking a lot of vitamin D the minute you get sick, it doesn't work like vitamin C within 30 minutes. Mm. You know,
1: it takes much longer. From, a, I mean, you mentioned from an evolutionary perspective, let's just on vitamin C, um, do you see it as a basically a design flaw, as a mutation that, that didn't do a lot for um, survival and fitness of the human species? Or is it that we we now are vitamin C sources, the berries that we used to get vitamin C from are now so chronically deficient?
0: Or is it a bit of both? It's a a design flaw. At the time that it occurred, um, I mean, basically most genetic changes are loss of information. So in other words, you get a bit of radiation, oxidation damage, you lose something. And uh, what actually happened is that we or our primary ancestors lost the ability for one step of the conversion of sugar into vitamin C. All yeah. animals make vitamin C from glucose, all plants from fructose, from sugar. We lost the, the last ability to do that. Now, what would that have meant? Well, if we were living in a tropical jungle. Uh, All apes consume grams of vitamin C, gorilla 4.5 grams, smaller monkeys 2 grams. So they are guzzling all day long fruits, berries, leaves, shoots, roots, etc. So they're eating. it. So if you lost the ability to make it, but you're eating several grams, um, what does that mean? It probably means you have an advantage. Why? Because all that glucose, all that sugar, all that energy that would have been used to make vitamin C, Is now available. So you become the fastest, you know, you become the sort of top shagging monkey, so to speak. You know, you are the best. And eventually your bloodline takes over and we end up, uh, and this, you know, we end up with all primates unable to make vitamin C. Patrick, just because everyone is really um, intent
1: on doing what they can to um, both for prevention, probably more importantly for prevention for the average listener and viewer. Um, what, Based on what we now know, we're a year into Covid, a combination of available trials and background knowledge, years of clinical experience with vitamin C,
0: what's the best that people can do, both for prevention and for early treatment? Well, I think um, for prevention, you want to be having a gram of vitamin C a day, uh, maybe two. I take two grams every day, supplemented, And that's definitely a sensible thing to do during Covid times. If you actually get the first signs of an infection, I would recommend a gram an hour or two grams every two hours. And many people, myself included, will sort of preload, like take three grams straight away and then wait a couple of hours, then take two grams every two hours. So and this,
1: this could be any infection, really doesn't matter if it's COVID or otherwise. If you haven't, if you,
0: if you haven't got a positive test um, as such, do it, it anyway. It, Anything, and what we've learned about vitamin C definitely is the sooner you start, the better. And the older you are, this is especially important because that's the one thing we really don't know enough about uh, is what happens with older people. Because basically when our cells become less efficient, we generate more oxidants, you know, we need more antioxidants, it's as simple as that. There are many parts of the process, even making vitamin D in the skin becomes less efficient when you're older. So this is you know, doubly, triply important. And just to explain the dynamics here, if you're like a super fit sports person and you go off and run, I don't know, 10 miles or something, um, and then you are exposed to the coronavirus and catch it, you, you'll actually be in a worse state because all of that exercise will have generated all these exhaust beams, oxidants. And uh, let's say you're one of those athletes that doesn't supplement vitamin C. So the more you exercise the more you need and that's why we do sometimes see super fit people you know following a period of extreme exercise who don't realize you've got to have more antioxidants and particularly vitamin C
1: and any interaction with um oral vitamin C and um endogenous glutathione the body's main antioxidant
0: well no I mean there's lots of there are a lot of cofactors you know zinc you've mentioned is also very important glutathione is important vitamin e there's you know uh, there, there's all sorts of other nutrients and that's why like number one in nutrition is always to have a sort of multicolored uh, you know diet i'm in my 60s so i actually also supplement an, an antioxidant which has glutathione and lipoic acid and coenzyme q and resveratrol i got a multi with vitamin e and zinc and obviously i have vitamin d as well so yes they are all team players no question but the really important thing to understand is that we are one of the few species have actually lost the ability to make vitamin c and you know when you really when the penny really drops you know my cat the neighbor's dog you know the sheep across the field none of these animals we don't We don't even care about them, you know, touching them or anything else. COVID seems to be completely irrelevant for the mouse and the rat and, you know, all these other creatures that make vitamin C. That's the critical point. So, yeah, all the other nutrients are good too, but vitamin C is something that we should copy what all animals that make vitamin C do, which is massively increase intake under any infection. And, Uh, Of course, if you get a cough or an itchy nose, you're not quite sure yet what it is. Uh, You know, my wife had that last night. She takes a gram of vitamin C. And those people who do this um, just, I mean, very often there's a lot of people who get COVID completely asymptomatically. And if you have this habit of taking, I mean, I know this because I I found this out from Linus Pauling when I was 25, and I've never had to take a day off work. You know, a couple of times I've had a serious flu. I think I had COVID in June. It was really unpleasant, but it took 18 hours. Yeah. So, you know, if if there was one thing to learn, it's to, you know, up that dose. And, And the big worry that I've got, you know, is what's happening to older people who don't know this and are starting off already deficient in vitamin C.
1: Patrick, we're going to drill on. If you can just give us a bit of a view. Obviously, you've got some of the data together looking at vitamin C status of the people in the setting that have had the greatest problem with COVID. And that's people in care homes. So what does it look like in relation to scurvy? You mentioned the yeah. level of 11 as a threshold. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, for, for starters, just, you know, we've got over 400,000, call it half, you know, almost half a million people in Britain are in care homes. In America, it's one and a half million. Uh, according to the British Medical Journal, in the first way, 47% of deaths were in care homes. A conservative figure at the beginning of this year, for example, if you looked in the Guardian, was that there were over 30,000 deaths in care homes. So we're looking at You know, a a good quarter, maybe a third of all deaths from COVID, uh, you know, uh, uh, have been in care homes. I mean, this is an extraordinary high number. So then you ask the question, uh, what is the vitamin C status of people in care homes? Mm -hmm. And that's where it gets really tricky, because I can go back to the MRC uh, unit at Cambridge uh, in 1992, who who looked at that and they found that 40 percent of people in care homes um, had a level below that 11, that scurvy level, 40%. But it hasn't been studied since? No, not studied since at all. So I Mm -hmm. then go to the Public Health England who do a national diet nutrition survey every other year. And they actually um, do measure plasma, vitamin C. So they're measuring vitamin C in the blood. And uh, what they say, from their survey, which is a cross-sectional survey, is that 4% of people over 65 have that overt deficiency level associated with scurvy. 4% of people over 65, that's 480,000 people, nearly half a million people in Britain. And you can imagine in America, that's going to be millions. Now, then I asked them, does your sample, because you do a cross-sectional sample of people, does it actually include people in care homes. They said, no, 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 we exclude anyone in care homes. So we're talking about people over 65, not in care homes, right? So then the next thing I looked at was what's changed in care homes since 1990 and, you know, in 2020. And the answer is the average age has gone up a lot. Uh, yeah. it, you know, in the 1980s, uh, and it was quite rare to have anyone over 90, you know, in care homes. now you know, a very, very big chunk are over 85. And why is that relevant? It's relevant because the older you get, the less efficient your cells are. And if you have any diseases of any inflammatory nature talking about, you know, arthritis or diabetes or heart disease or, you know, obviously cancer or anything else, but any disease where your body is fighting, you've got a lot more oxidative stress and you need a lot more vitamin C. Mm -hmm. So the Linus Pauling Institute did an assessment. I mean, this is purely a a, a really an educated guess, nothing more. And they think that people in care homes probably need over 400 milligrams. The, The basic RDA, which I call the ridiculous dietary arbitrary, is 40 milligrams. So they think, and they think from the basis of the very, very limited evidence that a person in a care home may need 10 times more than you or I just to have that normal level that would give you the beginning of a fighting chance if you ever got an infection. So recently uh, I read an article in the Guardian again, but this was on an Australian care home where they had a, a resident and this isn't at all uncommon who had bruises and ulcers and fatigue and you know their memory wasn't good and they going a little bit you know doolally and so on and someone said and various other signs do you think it could be scurvy and then what you realize is that no one even has in their mindset the symptoms of scurvy you know, the loss of I mean, it sorry, happened
1: God. on it happened on the ships
0: of Christica, Christopher yeah. Columbus and we haven't seen it since. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it's like that. And one of the things that happens in scurvy, by the way, people with scurvy die of pneumonia. Mm. So whenever you see pneumonia, you should think vitamin C straight away. But uh, another thing that happens in acute scurvy is people go crazy and they start to hallucinate. So we know there's a link to vitamin C and schizophrenia. Yeah. So uh, exactly. And uh, so one lady contacted me, she got COVID very badly, uh, was on a ventilator in a coma. And uh, when she came out of the coma, still on the ventilator, uh, they passed her a whiteboard. She had been hallucinating nothing but oranges. She, all she could think about was oranges. She was convinced that the freezer unit uh, in the ward that she could see was full of orange juice. And she just wrote on the whiteboard, oranges it took him four days to get any orange juice but she was hallucinating oranges and of course and orange juice isn't isn't a great source anymore it's not a particularly yeah, rich source. probably not but her body was and funny enough i met a an asian family um the the mothers of gp and uh she and her husband and all the kids got COVID. he actually got it uh, pretty badly he's an asthmatic went into a you know had to go to hospital and I rang up the hospital and said, please give him intravenous vitamin C, which they did, they gave him three grams intravenous vitamin C. And he was back and, and well, among other things as well, uh, within within 48 hours. But um, I said to her, just out of interest, any food cravings, She said It's funny you mentioned that because I just was craving fruit, citrus fruit, berries, and the penny hadn't dropped. So your body sometimes tells you. Isn't that interesting?
1: Amazing. Amazing. Patrick, um, clinicaltrials.gov has got um, 60 uh, trials on relating to COVID and vitamin C on it. Um, Of that, 13 are complete. The rest of them are active. Some of them are recruiting. Others are are still in process. What have we learned from the 13? Certainly some of them I've looked at, you think, wow, why didn't they give the right doses? But um, can you just critique what we've
0: learned in the last year specifically from trials on COVID? So, So a number, you know, there are these three stages where vitamin C works. One is general in the background. So you have a fighting chance when an infection kicks in. The second is increasing the dose the minute you get an infection. And the third is the acute phase where the intravenous helps. And in that acute phase, we've now got six studies they all show something good. So, you know, some of them show le- less deaths. The best one, the randomized placebo controlled trial on ventilated patients done in Wuhan. So, in other words, half get a drip with sterile water, half get a drip with vitamin C. 80% less deaths, uh, statistically significant in the critically ill. But all of them show. Um, they don't all show less deaths, but they all show something remarkable, like a big drop in inflammation or a, a less, you know, oxygenation improves. They're all absolutely in the right direction, and they vary in dose. You know, some are six grams, some are twenty-four grams, so and some are four days and some are seven days and so on. And what we've basically learned is you need at least twelve grams for at least seven days, not four days. Uh, that's, and- that's twelve grams a day. 12 grams a day intravenous so for example if you write to your mp they will uh, get a letter from joe churchill from department of health and uh, they will say it's all very interesting and we 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 like to do our own research in britain and we like randomized placebo controlled trials to be honest at this stage of what we know i think it's almost immoral to do a randomized controlled trial in intensive care patients because we know vitamin c works it's you know why would you deprive half of them but that's what's was on the table to do in britain in june you know last june so it was ready to roll and not a single patient has been treated on the remap cap vitamin c trial why well uh, when the second wave hit i contacted one intensive care unit uh and said guildford who were ready to start and said why haven't you started they said we've got no supplies So I rang up a supply of intravenous vitamin C and uh, they very kindly said, we'll donate vitamin C for the trial. And we have it right here. No problem at all with supply, none at all. Um, But the response was very sorry. We can't buy from you. We have to buy from, you know, Public Health England. That that sounds more like an excuse than a a reason. It really does because I think, you know, it's kind of crazy. If you can do, you know, 9 million, you know, PCR tests a day, uh, why can't you... You know, bother to find the supplier of vitamin C because it was there. And then what's slightly worse, uh, you know, Joe Churchill's letter, which, by the way, references uh, the study that I'm in, you know, my peer review study on vitamin C It references. They note that uh, says we are doing this study, but actually they haven't started because by the time they've now got the vitamin C, by the way, so, you know, they've got it, um, but they got it at the end of the second wave. So they got no people. Now they got the vitamin C. They got no people before they had the people They had no, you know, they had no vitamin C. So here we are second wave through and we're still ignoring it. But then the really dirty trick uh, was quite a reasonably decent trial in some respects, which gave people eight grams of this. Vit- the idea was to give eight grams of vitamin C upon infection. Right. And one group had eight grams of vitamin C, and one group had eight grams of vitamin C and a very low level of zinc, seven milligrams, irrelevant level of zinc. Yeah. That was completely wrong. And um, what happened was this trial uh, cheated on the statistics, and in the original presentation of this to a journal, uh, the peer reviewers pointed out the inadequacies in the way they were processing the data, and it got rejected. And then suddenly it appears in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Um, And not only does it appear, but it's like the front piece of research. It's got the editorial, which then has the press release, which goes out saying vitamin C doesn't work. Actually, what we would have predicted in a trial giving eight grams of vitamin C in the first day of infection would be 20% shorter infection. What they got was 18% shorter infection. And what they did was to do the statistics in a way to say it was not significant, when actually there was a 70% um, statistically significant improved rate of recovery. What they didn't do was to give people eight grams on the first day of an infection. What they did was to give eight grams to outpatients who tested COVID positive. I contacted the authors and said, um, you know, on average, how many days into an infection before they started? And the basis of that is if you're a doctor and somebody appears saying, I've got this terrible cough and sore throat, the first question you say is, tell me, when did it start, right? So by the time you've got to outpatients, I don't know many people who'd go to outpatient, you know, in the a on the first day of an infection. You know, they'd wait one day, two day, three days, you know, until they got quite severe. Also, they have to get tested. So whether they then went off and got tested and then went to our patients or went to out, you know, it's got to be a few days delay. But Patrick, I mean, uh, e- e-
1: even that dosage is, is yeah. too low, isn't it? I mean, do, well, uh, it's, Dr. Genie Drisco would say even the 12 grams IV yeah. is about half of what you should give if you really want the hydrogen peroxide effect uh, and the, the, the strongest antiviral effect. It would have to be double yeah. that.
0: Yeah, I mean, all of this is absolutely possible, but even to get, you know, even at eight grams given in the first day, it should make a difference. And a 20% difference, by the way, is, you know, a five-day infection turns into a four-day infection. And what that means is you don't convert to the critical phase. Mm -hmm. So yes, uh, in other words, if we know that one or two grams doesn't work and eight grams does, then at least we've got somewhere. The next question is, does 12 grams work better than eight grams, you know, and so on. So uh, the current state of the science is that we know that vitamin C saves lives in the, at the critical care phase. And now we have an additional study which shows that taking eight grams, even if you start a bit late, you know, during infection does reduce the infection. And, and, and then course, you say, well, why not do it? I mean, you know, why not roll it out? But of course, the, the within a typical
1: critical care um, setting you have people with a very diverse range of comorbidities you don't just have um, older people who are chronically deficient in vitamin C so it's actually a, a different population group so, so Patrick um, it's been challenging trying to get the National Health Service in the UK to get on board with vitamin C but there is um, a bit of uh, sunlight coming through the clouds. In the in the possibility yeah. of a trial in the UK in Scotland, that's going to be specifically looking at older people in care homes and vitamin C. Um, tell us about the Vita C for Care study that you're involved with.
0: Yes, so I've teamed up with uh, Associate Professor Anitra Carr, who's actually from New Zealand, University of Otago, who's one of a really good vitamin C researcher, and Professor. Pio Mint, uh, a lovely gentleman, he is the Clinical Chair of Medicine and Old Age at the University of Aberdeen, and also Dr. Alan Snedden, who's from the Rowett Institute, uh, which is very well known all over the world for its work on nutrition and metabolism, and also uh, NHS Grampian uh, with with Dr. Uh, Castora. And what we're going to do is go into care homes uh, in Scotland. And it's, it's a remarkably simple and clever little study because we're going to find out how much vitamin C is actually needed in older people in care homes. And the way we do this is that when we were talking about animals always keeping their blood level of vitamin C at a certain point, And when we look at the government who wants you to be above 50 nanomoles per liter in the blood when you're at that level you always have some vitamin c spilling into the urine Mm -hmm. so you should always be excreting some vitamin c it's by the way very protective for your your bladder and so on so when people say when you take vitamins you just make expensive urine you Mm -hmm. actually should be excreting some vitamins in your urine so what we're going to do we've got vitamin c sticks p sticks Mm -hmm. Uh, And we're going to give people every day, gradually an increasing amount of vitamin C and measure the vitamin C in their urine. By the way, it takes three hours to go from, you know, your food to your blood to your urine. So there's a delay. But every day we're going to crank up the dose a bit, a bit, a bit, a bit, a bit, a bit. And for each individual, we will find out at what dose they start to spill vitamin C into the urine In other words, achieve their level. We have a separate study, by the way, looking at blood and urine. Um, So we know what's going on, but we don't want to jab a whole lot of old people. Uh, Urine sticks are very, very non-invasive. So in this. This is is also completely independent of
1: COVID initially because. uh, It's um, nothing
0: to do with COVID. Just to establish the levels. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't mean, doesn't matter if they've been vaccinated or not vaccinated, et cetera. We're just simply asking the question how much vitamin C does an older person in a care home need to have a normal tissue saturation? And, you know, that is like step one because if you don't have that and a virus comes along which rapidly uses up vitamin C, you don't have a chance at all. Uh, this is the study we're doing, it's a very clean study. It's relatively inexpensive. We can do all of this for 20,000 pounds. You know, I mean, as studies go, that's remarkably cheap. What kind of numbers would go through the program? It's, we need 30 people to do this. You know, it's not so many uh, to establish that. Uh, So it's a very clean, very simple, very obvious study that has not been done anywhere in the world. The information, the fact that we're doing in Scotland doesn't really matter. It's the same kind of demographics we have in the UK, America, and other countries. But it's asking the question that is this so obvious to us. We cannot assume that a 20-year-old needs the same amount of vitamin C you know, as a 90-year-old in a care home with comorbidities. And, and are you, you measuring that. blood levels alongside it? or? No, we have, a, we have a separate study where we're looking at the dynamics of blood and urine. So we will already have established exactly how that works, but we don't need to be doing blood in these people. Uh, we just need to do the urine measurements because that will determine how you, know, how you get to saturation. And also what I love about this study, I mean, it's a very important study to do, and you know, we obviously need money to do this. And the next study after that, we could then look at what happens if you give more vitamin C to someone who, who becomes infected is that um, it uses such an incredibly simple measure that costs a barely a few pence, which is a, a vitamin C urine dipstick. Mm-hmm. So the point here is that I, I went to one intensive care unit, Chelsea Westminster, and I met the wonderful um, head of research, um, intensive care research there, Dr. Marcella Vizcacchipi, and she was already giving vitamin C, usually one or two grams, mm-hmm. and sometimes getting kickbacked you know, from others in the system who just are so anti vitamins. We're so anti vitamins in, in the UK, it's just extraordinary. Uh, the evidence does not support the position that exists within the NHS and the medical profession at all. And I said, You're a woman of science. How do you know you're giving enough if you don't test? And she said, You're absolutely right. So I gave her some vitamin C um, uh, dipsticks and she started to test people. And she found often that she needed to give six grams. Before there would be any in the urine. So what I'm saying here is, what should be happening in these COVID times, without a question, in hospitals, uh, is every single person who arrives in hospital with COVID should just dipstick in the urine. Mm, no vitamin C. We need to give you some. You know, it's so cheap. It's so easy. It's so. Dangerous. So that and that
1: that still is some distance away from a trial that's going to be telling the NHS, for example, what the optimum levels are for, you know, w- within
0: a, a critical care setting. It is, it is, but you know, we have over 30,000 people. Oh. I mean, our grandparents have died in care homes in America. You know, the number is probably 100,000 people. And I know people have this sort of, oh, they're old and they're going to die anyway, and they sort of just pass it off. But this this isn't right. Uh, these older people we know need more vitamin C. The question is how much more vitamin C do they need? And of course, as we eat away at the edges of the intensive care research on vitamin C and the you know eight gram on the you know all these different directions, eventually somewhere we hope the penny will drop. Because Linus Pauling in one thousand, nine hundred and seventy wrote a book on this, and he put on the front page of the book. Um, that when the next uh, swine flu epidemic hits, everybody needs to know that the, uh, you know, the symptoms can be massively reduced by the appropriate use of vitamin C. And somehow we've got to get people, I mean, do you know, in Wales, where I spend a lot of my time at at our retreat center, Forest Barn, they know that when you get a cold, you have elderberries. Mm. It's just, you know, in the mentality. Yeah. And we need to get into the mentality, um, vitamin C. Vitamin D, I went for vitamin C, by the way, uh, the the campaign on vitamin C, which is also where you can donate for the care home study, is called vitamin C4, it's actually the number four, but it doesn't matter, vitamin C4covid.com. And uh, we now have almost 100, uh, uh, we've got 10,000 active supporters, We have almost a thousand professors, doctors, nutritional professionals, um, frontline workers supporting this campaign. And the reason I went really ballistic for vitamin C was not because I don't totally know that vitamin D is important, or zinc, or quercetin, or anything else. But I knew that vitamin D was already being championed and I knew that we had already over 100 relevant studies on vitamin C. So the care home study is really important because it establishes something worldwide that needs to be known. And remember, if it turns out that an older person needs 400 or 500 milligrams, uh, you, know, you need to eat 12 oranges to get there. Yep. So in other words, you're going to have to supplement. Yeah. And the minute that penny drops, the older people actually need to supplement vitamin C daily just to have, be at a normal level. Then the idea of taking vitamin C supplements becomes, you know, as as easy as one would take a painkiller if
1: you've got a headache. Absolutely. The, the tragedy of it is if you imagine the amount of uh, medications that are being used in a care home environment huge amounts of the budgets are are going towards the NHS budget is going towards that. And we're looking at an incredibly low cost vitamin. If you're not in a care home, chances are you can, you don't have to wait for the government to tell you, you can, you can take it now. Um, But people in a care home may not be able to take it on their own without um a directive from Public Health England. So um, Patrick, it's it's really important. If you could just say you know, bottom line is you, you can't get funding for this kind of project from any of the normal um, BBSRC um, research yeah. routes. So this is crowdfunding of research and you're looking to people to to make donations. So if you can just mention the website again.
0: Uh, the website is vitamin C for COVID.com, vitamin C for COVID.com. If you go there, hit the donate button, it really, you know, 50 quid, 10 quid, 100 quid. Uh, We can raise, you know, whatever you can give makes such a difference. And by the way, also it will help us. We're all doing this for nothing. Uh, So, you know, I'm, I'm not charging anything for any of my time. Most of the researchers that I've mentioned are just you know they're not charging either. We've kept the cost really, really low. So every penny you give, I mean is will help not only the care home study, but it helps the whole vitamin C campaign. We hope to keep doing the essential research that's necessary to drum home the message. But on this point, grandparents' lives do matter. It's not good enough for us to allow tens of thousands of people to die, probably, ultimately from a vitamin C deficiency scurvy in the 2020 scurvy
1: is back and no one's talking about it Patrick thank you so much for getting the message out we'll work with you we'll try and get this out um, as wide as possible really important this is a study just to to finalize uh, is the study going to start with some of the initial funds or is it not getting off, off the get-go until the funding is in
0: no, we need twenty thousand. We've raised just over four thousand. So we okay. need, we need. It's it's <laughs> just it's just going into ethics approval. I think you know that stage. Yeah. Uh, we have enough money to you know to present it, but we literally cannot start this study, which we hope to start in August, maybe the latest September. Uh, we cannot start it unless we raise this money. Perfect. Okay. Well, it's a very good time to do it now before
1: um, any prospects of, of a third wave. Patrick, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you.